there are other reasons uh, why people self-injure. Now, um, uh, people often say, isn't it attention-seeking? Um, I mean, I remember a kid who'd been self-injuring for two years, and uh, uh, the parent said, I think it's attention-seeking. And I asked the parent when they found out, and they said, oh, we found out last week. I said, well, that's terrible attention-seeking if it took you two years to find out that the person's doing it. Um, it almost never is attention-seeking, even though many people consider it attention-seeking behavior. Now, it is a statement that says, I'm suffering. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. We're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Today we have a special guest joining us to help us unpack a difficult topic, self-harm in teenagers. Dr. Blaise Aguirre is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at McLean Hospital and assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Aguirre is also the founding medical director of the Three East Continuum of Care, a variety of programs for teens that uses dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, to target self-endangering behaviors, as well as the symptoms of borderline personality disorder traits. So, Blaze, thanks for joining us. We're glad to have you with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for for having having me on. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know I work on a DBT unit, uh, but nevertheless, we're seeing even more demand uh, for uh, ideas to address self-injury. And I hear you have some, I hear you have jokes. Um, Gina, I, I have jokes. Uh, they, they tend to pop up um, as things, uh, you know, uh, go along. So, um, you know, if, 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 if the time uh, shows, uh, shows up, I'll, uh, uh, I'll say it when it comes. I, I, they tend to embarrass my children. They, they, uh, so I come to work and I try to tell them there and they embarrass the, uh, the, uh, my staff as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. We, we'll, we we'll might, see we, we might, we might need a joke or two when we're talking about self-harm because, you know, sometimes you have to offset, offset something that's so, um, scary, uh, and potentially dangerous, uh, that, that, um, uh, we may have to offset that, but okay. Let's let's get started. So, for our listeners who may not know, can you tell us uh, what self harm is, and and why some teens do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, very broadly speaking, self harm is um, is uh, the way that most people think about it. Let's put it that way: is sort of any. Uh, uh, self-destructive act that is um, where where skin or body tissues are injured without uh, 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 the intention of uh, of suicide. So the types of things that we um, we see are cutting. That's the most common. Um, but then we see things like uh, people burning themselves, um, people punching uh, walls, people banging their heads. Those are the most common types of self-harm that we see. And, you know, we opened up our unit uh, about 15 years ago 
uh, with the uh, explicit intention of helping people who are suicidal and who are self-harming. Um, and uh, but so the most common thing, uh, type of self-harm, of course, is is uh, as I say, the cutting, the burning, uh, punching walls, and headbanging. And so most of the time when we think about self-harm, we do think about the harm that people do to themselves that leaves these scars. And sometimes the scars aren't so obvious. So are there other ways in which people, young people can engage in self-harm that is a little bit different from cutting, but still self-destructive? Yeah, I mean, you know, people have tried to think about this in different ways. So for instance, is restricting eating uh, a way of harming yourself um, is using certain drugs a way of harming yourself is getting uh, multiple piercings and uh, tattooing ways of uh, harming yourself is uh, getting into a dangerous sexual encounter with an unknown person a way of self-harming so uh, the way that we think about these behaviors where there's potentially damage to the self um, is uh, what we call the function of the behavior. Like, why is the person actually uh, uh, doing that behavior and um, how could it potentially be uh, destructive? So um, there are other forms of self-harm. And and when we see these other forms, we really want to, as I say, understand the function. But what I mean by the function is the reason why the person is doing it. You know, because somebody might want to have a drink uh, of wine, a glass of wine, just because they want to have a drink a glass of wine, but others might do it because they want to change how they're feeling. So we really look at the intention and the function of the behavior. Um, so I have a number of questions. So it's it's is self harm. So self harm, as you're defining it, is not necessarily suicidal. The, the the vast majority of self harm, I, I don't know. It would be ninety nine point many nine percent. Um, of the times that it happens is not suicidal behavior. Now, um, a couple of things about this. It is not suicidal behavior. However, there can be self-harm with suicidal intent. Um, The other thing is if there's self-harm through cutting, there can be a lot of uh, blood um, and um, that can be very scary to uh, families, and then uh, they can jump to the idea or the conclusion that the person is trying to uh, to complete suicide or to kill themselves. Um, and we also know that uh, uh, even though it's a different concept, that uh, people who self-harm are somewhere, depending on the research study, th- between 30 and 60 times more likely to complete suicide. So. Uh, it's not the same thing, and yet it's uh, highly, uh, ty- you know, we, we, we look, at, look at it because the, the two things are highly connected. So it's it's a warning sign. You mentioned reasons, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 and I've heard of a number. It, it, uh, I've heard of it, for example, as um, uh, help-seeking behavior, as tension release. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, uh, so uh, I've heard it I've heard it being planned and I've heard it being impulsive. So could you elaborate on some of those reason, reasons and situations? Is it generally with you know impulsive or planned and, and what some of the reasons might be? 
Yeah, I mean, the, certainly with adolescents, uh, adolescents that that we see uh, coming to dialectical behavior therapy, the main reason that we see is um, uh, uh, as a way of reducing very intense and powerfully painful emotions. Now, um, uh, for those of us in the in the field, those of us who are maybe more sensitive than uh, people in other professions. Um, you know, we feel things deeply and we can feel things pretty intensely. But imagine feeling so much that the feeling becomes painful and uh, that cutting yourself is actually feels better, so to speak, than experiencing the intense emotions. And so we know that there are brain changes that happen um, when somebody self-injures through cutting. Uh, and those brain changes, so some people think it's because of the uh, opiate system in the brain, uh, that there's a chemical release of uh, uh, endogenous endorphins, meaning the, the opiates that the brain makes, uh, and that that soothes the brain, or that it, it distracts the person from emotional suffering to, to, to sort of physical suffering. But, but nevertheless, uh, the main reason is that uh, whatever is going on for the person is intolerable and it's unbearable, and that cutting uh, provides uh, some answers and provides temporary relief. Um, there are other reasons uh, why people self-injure. Now, um, uh, people often say, isn't it attention-seeking? Um, I mean, I remember a kid who'd been self-injuring for two years, and uh uh, the parent said, I think it's attention-seeking. And I asked the parent when they found out, and they said, oh, we found out last week. I said, well, that's terrible attention-seeking if it took you two years to find out that the person's doing it. Um, it almost never is attention-seeking, even though many people consider it attention-seeking behavior. Now, it is a statement that says, I'm suffering, and that by self-injuring, they feel something, they feel alive. Um, and... Um, uh, we sometimes have uh, young people tell us that they uh, they're, that they're really bad people, that they're they loathe themselves, they don't like themselves, that they're uh, not that they their lives aren't worth anything, that they deserve to be punished, and so they'll see it as self punishment. Um, we do see um, self injury in, in 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 other groups, although. You know, we don't tend to see them on our program. So, for instance, some people with developmental disabilities might do things like, um, you know, bang their heads, and uh, then you know, the treatment of that would be uh, slightly different. Um, and then there's this other form of self-injury which we see a couple of times a year, uh, where, um, and this tends to happen more in people who've got a very significant post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and uh, uh, where they uh, do things like um, they, they they cut themselves open a little bit and then put foreign objects into the cut. Um, so you know, sort of like an insertion of a of a foreign body into into a cut. It sort of keeps the cut uh, open and weeping. Um, or they swallow um, you know foreign objects like you know paper clips and things like that. Those are different types of. Uh, self-injury but again you know the most common one that we see is uh is uh cutting uh, of the self now now one thing one thing you asked earlier about the whether the planned one versus the um, impulsive one one of the things that we do see in some people who've got obsessive compulsive disorder 
their cutting, um, and I've seen it in some of the patients that we see, tends to be a little bit more planned. Um, it's it's more predictable. It's uh, less erratic. Uh, for um, you know, many of the young people we see on our unit, where it's very emotionally driven, um, it can be uh, unpredictable because and 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 very dependent on the person's mood. So you know, something bad happens and then they self-injure, or um, you know, someone doesn't give them a call and then they self-injure. So so you do want to look at the form of the self-injury. Um, it's very important. A couple follow-up things to that, uh, Blaze. And that is, is that um, this might be a kind of a psychoanalytic uh, or a psychodynamic uh, reason, but um, I've seen a number of, of folks who've cut to attack, you know, a parent or some or some some person close to them that they've internalized, so that they're not really attacking themselves; they're attacking someone else. And I wonder, I know that's not part of DBT, mm -hmm. but it is, a, it is a more classical mm -hmm. version of cutting. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second comment is, is that I've heard from many of the folks that I've seen cut mm -hmm. that the cutting doesn't hurt. For some reason, it doesn't hurt until later, until they feel the blood on their leg that's cold or until they feel the wound. So two questions. Are they cutting what we would call um, an interject or somebody that they've taken in? And and the second one is, what do you make of this business about numbness and then feeling it later? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> there's actually, um, I remember very early on, um, I had a kid who had um, uh, with a lot who did a lot of cutting. We um, went out on a on a pass um, and was um, uh, running, slipped and uh, cut themselves. And they were in tremendous amount of pain and they went to the emergency room and, you know, the, the physician said, how can you be in pain? You cut yourself all the time um, uh, uh, and now you, you got cut and now you're hurting. So, so what research seems to show is that in the brain that is highly emotional, um, self-injury, actually, uh, the, the, the impact of the cutting isn't felt in the moment. There's actually been um, uh, uh, tests uh, where people had, you know, they're called pressure tests or, you know, you, you increase the amount of pressure on a person's hand uh, and to the point where they, or, or, or maybe temperature um, to the point where the person feels pain. And people who have um, emotional dysregulation disorders like borderline personality disorder tend not to feel the pain until much after. So people with high emotionality don't experience the pain. Uh, but there's something about tissue damage that leads to uh, the release of uh, of chemicals that, that you know that 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 soothes the brain and calms it down. Later on, once they're calm, then they're you know like everybody else, uh, they can begin to feel the pain. Um, but 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 the truth of the matter is in the moment, um, you know, uh, it's actually soothing. And, you know, if you think about this, I was try trying to think about an equivalent in, in people who don't self-injure. But if you get bitten by a mosquito and then and then you're very itchy and you scratch yourself, how soothing that feels. It's sending messages to your brain to, you know, and, and, and that scratching can be pretty significant. I mean, you know, to the point of tissue damage. Uh, but that you know, that's causing, uh, uh, you know, release of, of chemicals in the brain that just sort of soothes the brain. Um, 
Now, uh, the idea, the old psychodynamic idea of uh, punishing another, um, you know, we have seen it on rare occasion. But the uh, uh, you know one of the things that we do in the in the in the work that, we, that 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 we do dialectical behavior therapy is to be very explicit and very upfront about the conflict that exists between say parent and child, and then find other mechanisms to be able to deal with it. So, in my you know I was trained psychoanalytically. I would have spent a long time kind of exploring that behavior. Uh, as aggression towards a parent, right? You know, in DBT, we say, look, we don't want you to be sort of scarred up. It's clear that you're angry at your parent for the things that they've done or the perceived things that they've done. How are we going to do this differently? So uh, we get on top of it as quickly as we can, whatever the reason is for doing so. So, so one of the things um, that we often do, I think, in in the field is we talk about how people present and what their risk factors are, and we omit the uniquenesses of, if that's the word, of these various groups and the, you know, um, the uniqueness of their experiences um, in terms of whether they've had trauma, whether they've, you know, been predisposed to a lot of violence. Um, so I guess I'm curious to know if there are any differences that that you see or that is known about in the literature as it relates to the motivation or the function of the behavior in some of the various groups. I guess even if we just think about, you know, boys versus girls or, uh, you know, we think about, you um, LGBTQIA, um, are there differences in, in how they present or how they how they are motivated to engage in this behavior? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, initially when we first started our, uh, the program, it was a very binary group. It was uh, actually, in, you know, in the very early days, we only uh, treated uh, uh, girls, young women. Uh, and then uh, we opened up our program to to boys and girls, and then we opened up our program to, you know, uh, people who didn't, who were not binary, who who did not identify as male or female, um, uh, gender fluid, uh, and then, you know, to people of all faiths um, of uh, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, etc. And so over time, we've, um, you know, evolved a better understanding of, um, you know, the various groups. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, that we see is that, and again, this research is changing. So, but as of today, that uh, women tend to, um, uh, you know, girls who people who identify as women tend to self-injure more than 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 boys. Then we also know that people who are LGBTQ, especially uh, trans people, tend to uh, uh, self-injure much more than almost any group. Uh, We're also seeing an increase, even though it's not as high, um, uh, self-injury in African-Americans or or, uh, certainly Black Americans, um, we're seeing an increase. but but the reason why the various groups self injure or don't self injure, for instance, I've had people who are who are devoutly faithful in their faith, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, uh, who will not self injure, not because they don't want to, uh, but they won't cut because of markings on their body, so that there's something about their faith that um, you know is not allowed within their faith. But maybe they will uh, self injure through restricting or you know something like that. Um, the reason, you know, especially the the uh, 
gender non-conforming or, or, or gender different uh, people self-injure um, often has to do with a lot of the social response to who they are. So, so I mean, we know that trans people, for example, are much more likely to be bullied than, than other people. And so that bullying can lead to such an aversive state of experience that uh that they self-injure for for that for that reason um um the um um the other thing is is that um you know girls tend to self-injure younger i think what we've seen is that girls have maybe more cuts or, or more cutting episodes and then when the boys have um cut themselves it tends to be I mean, we I've seen more stitches, for example, more uh, on, in boys than than in girls. So, um, uh, so there are differences. Um, I mean, we use similar kinds of treatments, uh, but but some and some of the reasons are have to do with uh, something that's going on inside of the person themselves. Um, you know, interpersonal reasons, and uh, for some people, it's uh, interpersonal reasons. Stuff going on uh, in their communities, in their schools, in their uh, societies so i want to follow up on something you said because i think one of the things that we often hear a lot and we it's hard to kind of reconcile how to what what to do with that information is when people have the urge to self-injure but they're not and so you mentioned that some people won't do it because of scars and some people are have i guess maybe become a little bit more um, aware or a little bit more in control of their impulses. And so they don't, but they still have strong urges. How do you think about the urges minus yeah. the, the act? Yeah. Um, you know, um, this is, this can also be a very, very confusing question for parents because um, what happens is um, uh, uh, first of all, just the idea of cutting yourself is in and of itself very complicated, but then, you know, um, even if you have the urge to do something, do you need to act on it? Now, if we remember that um, adolescence is also a time of exploration and, you know, young people tend to be riskier and they tend to be more impulsive, um, uh, you can have an urge and behave on that urge or you can have an urge and not behave on on, on that urge. Um, um, you know, uh, people can have an urge to smoke and not smoke or people can have an urge to eat a second uh, donut and then not eat that second donut. Um, you know, so ur- an urge is just this phenomena, a behavior that just happens in the brain in terms of like, okay, this is the thing that I want to do. Now, um, uh, people early on in treatment, uh, their ability to uh, override that urge is is pretty impaired. They don't have the skill set to be able to do it. And what we want to do is we want people to be able to notice that urge, and then uh, not act on the urge and instead act on on a different uh, behavior. Overcoming those urges can be really really difficult. Um, I sometimes do a practice with um, with parents where. Um, where I say, okay, I want you to sit with your mouth closed for five minutes, and I want you to notice the urge to swallow and not swallow. And um, it's remarkable because there comes a point at which you know you feel like I have to swallow. There's nothing I can do. I have to swallow or or you know um, do something else. So so um, overriding urges is actually uh, um, very difficult if you don't have alternatives. Um, and uh, some young people 
expend a tremendous amount of psychic energy overriding the urge if they don't have the skill set to be able to distract from the urge uh, to do something. The other thing that we know is that, um, the, you know, um, over the course of a day, uh, people become more exhausted. All of us do, uh, whether we have a psychiatric disorder, mental health illness, or not a psychiatric disorder or not. And so we tend to see a lot more self-injury in the evening. So even though they're able to override the uh, urge to self-injure during the day, they're not able to at night. And then there's other things. So for instance, in, in some people who've got obsessive compulsive disorder, sometimes um, they have what we would call respondent behavior. So they see a knife, for example, and they, they self-injure because they respond to the knife. So the knife prompts the self-injury behavior. And uh, the people that we treat typically with emotional dysregulation disorders wouldn't be doing that um, if they were feeling okay. So, Blaze, uh, one other question. Um, uh, are there certain other predispositions that might make one more likely to engage in self-harm? I mean, you talked about borderline personality disorder um, and obsessive-compulsive disorder, but what about other mental health disorders? Yeah. Uh, and also, besides the psychiatric disorders, what about what family dynamics or family history might make it more likely that someone is going to be a cutter or engaged in self-harming behavior? Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely uh, we see, you know, self-injury is not uh, uh, the domain of borderline personality disorder, nor vice versa. And, and in all mental health conditions, we see um, uh, self-injury. And in most cases, uh, when we see self-injury, um, it is an attempt to change the inner state of the person. Uh, certainly developmental disorders as well. We see sort of uh, uh, self-injury. Um, you know, in, in schools, um, you know, being bullied uh, and bullying others can, can lead to self-injury independent of uh, uh, mental illness. Again, um, struggling, struggling with low self-esteem, um, uh, feelings of worthlessness, um, people who um, uh, are unable to make or maintain relationships uh, can, can, can self-injure. Uh, you know, in terms of family dynamics, I've seen uh, young people with uh, very uh, sort of goal-oriented, very driven families where maybe, you know, two kids have gone to Ivy League schools and then the youngest one or one of the other ones just, you know, is not academically prone or is interested in arts and everything and sort of feels that um, very pressured to excel in the way that their siblings and their maybe their parents have. Um, and then they don't, uh, if they don't succeed in those ways, they'll feel that they're not part of the family or they're less than. And I've seen self-injury in, in that kind of uh, context. Um, I've seen kids who've got um, learning difficulties, learning disabilities, um, self-injure. Um, actually, um, one thing that surprised me is is kids with uh, with autism or on the autism spectrum um, uh, self-injuring. Uh, but again, um, uh, you know, certainly we talked about LGB. Um, um, I've had kids who um, uh, who've experienced either uh, the traumatic loss or just the loss of a loved one um, uh, self-injure. So you know, like the the unbearable grief of of having lost a a beloved relative, a grandparent. Um, um, you know, I had a, a, a kid who um, who reached out, um, who started self-injuring after the loss of loss of their beloved pet. 
Um, so, you know, the theme of loss, the, the theme of lack of connection, the theme of rejection uh, in within the presence or not in the presence of mental illness is, is one of the reasons why people uh, self-injure. If it's safe to say that self-injury is a maladaptive coping skill, there are theories that say taking this act or the skill or this behavior away from someone is actually causing more harm and can be dangerous. Is that true? Does does self-injury serve some sort of psychological or defensive protective purpose for young people? You know, and I'm glad that you used the um, maladaptive, uh, the term maladaptive coping skill, because, you know, people say, well, why are you doing these ineffective behaviors? And in fact, they're very effective. You see, this is the thing that uh, a lot of people don't understand. They're highly effective, but to your point, they're maladaptive in the sense of like that it's not a behavior that that is generalizable or that you can transport or one day if you want to have a family yourself that you're going to say, okay, look, I'm, I've had it with you guys. I'm going to self-injure. Um, now, so so the way that dialectical behavior therapy, the therapy that I do, um, thinks about this is um, a person is going to continue to do any behavior that works for them. Um, so if self-injury works for you, even if it's maladaptive, if it reduces your tension, if it helps you feel better in the moment, you're going to continue to uh, do that behavior. Simply taking a behavior away from someone is not uh, successful. We haven't found a way to do that. You can't just simply take a behavior away. You have to replace it with something that's maybe less effective in the short run, but is more adaptive in the long run. So, so we see kids who self-injure as having a, a, a deficit, a skills deficit in their ability to regulate their emotions and regulate their relationships. And so we're saying, okay, you're having a difficult time regulating your emotions and relationships. Uh, you've developed a skill, which is to self-injure as a way of regulating how you feel in the moment. The problem is it's very short-lived and it doesn't doesn't last very long and you have to do it repeatedly. So uh, we're going to teach you other mechanisms, other methods of doing it. So if somebody were to say to me, if you just take self-injury away, is that a bad thing? What I've heard from some kids, what some kids have told me is that if uh, they feel the way that they feel and somebody just took cutting away from them, that the likelihood of suicide would increase for them, you know, without knowing other ways to deal with it. So, so you know, it just doesn't work just taking it away. But also, I don't know how you would take uh, self-injury away because, um, you know, uh, young people, or actually anybody can find ways to self-injure, even if you think that you've taken things away. So some people like just remove um, knives from the house, uh, but, but they're infinite uh, objects to sort of self-injure with, if, if that's your goal. And sometimes as caregivers and parents, we don't know if sometimes what our young people are struggling with is just a phase and it'll pass, or if it's something more serious. Do kids or, or teenagers grow out of this, or does it continue throughout their life, or does it actually kind of grow into something bigger? Do they engage in other kind of more riskier behaviors? Um, yeah, so what we tend to see is that it tends to peak around um, 19, 20, uh, 21. So, so wh where we see is we see a, a sudden bump uh, uh, around puberty. So younger and girls, so maybe like 13, 14 and girls and maybe 
15, 16 in, in boys. Um, and again, I'm using a binary system, but uh, for the sake of this uh, discussion. Uh, and then there is a little bit of uh, dropping off, and then we see another increase um, around um, age 19 for both boys and girls. You know, and that probably has to do with, um, you know, uh, graduating from high school, um, going off to college, getting a job, leaving home, and those sorts of things. Um, but um, but then it, it definitely tends to drop off um, in young adulthood. Uh, so there's something about um, uh, early and late adolescence that uh, seems to predispose uh, people to, uh, to self-injure. And so there's a question from a parent. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel about this idea of just letting them go through the process, even if it's long and slow? Um, and how do you as a parent deal with I guess, witnessing yeah. your child or your young person, you know, engage in self-harm. Yeah. Well, for, for, by the way, so it's a really important question. Um, the um, First of all, I would really work with the kid about reducing self-harm for, for a couple of reasons. One is we know that people who self-harm are more likely to die by suicide, even if the self-injury isn't uh, um, uh, suicidal in intent. Uh, there, there are there are scars that can happen, uh, and you know that they can live with those um, um, uh, for the for the rest of their lives. Um, that as that without, um, as long as they continue to self injure, they're not learning other coping mechanisms, which are going to be critical uh, for many sort of situations in their life. And I think that this is you know as a parent who's seeing their child suffer, uh, um, that. You know, this our therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, involves the parent and the child, so that it teaches the child what to do when they want to self-injure, and it teaches the parent, you know, how to react and how not to react when a child is self-injuring and seeing it as a, a behavior of distress. Um, so I think that the child, the, the the parent, ought not to be suffering in silence because the other thing that happens is that. You know, a lot of these kids are highly sensitive. So even if the parent is uh, showing a very kind of stoic face, children can read right through that. Highly sensitive kids can read right through it. So I think that the the parent ought to be getting help themselves, whether it's skills, whether it's their own therapy to be able to deal with it. But I would 100% be bringing this up with kids all the time and saying, we have to find a different way. There are different ways. Um, so, so how 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 do you treat self harm? I mean, it's a great question. I mean, does it depend on? You mentioned uh, reasons. Uh, that's one thing that I wonder if you would address. Does it depend on the age group? Um, are medications useful? Uh, is group therapy useful? I mean, I've heard this from a number of people. They wonder, okay, so what what actually goes into the to the treatment process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, again, um, uh, uh, I think where where many of us as mental health experts uh, sometimes don't do our patients a service is understanding what what I would call what DBT calls the function of the uh, uh, behavior. So, in other words, okay, let's just say that a person self injures because they've got obsessive compulsive disorder and that the um, uh, the uh, the purpose of cutting is to satisfy 
uh, a compulsion, then you would be doing a, a treatment such as exposure and response prevention. I've had kids who've told me that they're addicted to cutting. And what we see in those kids is not only do they cut, but they cut longer, deeper, uh, more extremely. And in those situations, if it's very clear that there's an addiction component, medications such as naltrexone can help those kids um, uh, with, with, with the, you know, the reason why they're cutting. Um, we've had kids who've come in who tell us that the voices tell them to cut. So that the reason for the self-injury is is a psychotic process, um, uh, and um, and that the function is to appease the voices. And so, in that case, antipsychotic medication might be useful um, for the kids that we see. Um, uh, it's for self-injury, and it's because they don't have other skills to be able to manage the self-injury, uh, the emotion, the emotional dysregulation. Um, and in those cases, we haven't found that antipsychotics or naltrexone or ERP work. And then we use dialectical behavior therapy where we teach uh, skills to tolerate distress, to regulate emotions that are more adaptive. Um, but it's hard to, you know, so there's not a one size fits all. Um, uh, in you know, for for self injury, if there are developmental disorders, um, it might be preventative. So, um, uh, so I think I think really understanding the function and uh, the the cause of the self injury is critical to this. So, just thinking about how scary it must be when you discover that your young person is engaging in self injury, and you spoke a little bit to what parents could do um, if they discovered their child is self injuring. What are some things that we should not do as parents and caregivers? Yeah, you know, um, I was giving a talk the other day on on uh, on sort of myths about suicide, and there's also some myths about self injury. Um, you know, simply talking to your kid is not going to increase the behavior. So, um, you know, so what we want to do is we want to have a discussion with with our kids about the behaviors that they're doing, whatever the behavior is. So, if it's self injury. Been talking about self-injury. If it's a suicide, talking to your kid about suicide, that talking about it is not going to um, uh, increase the the behavior. Um, now, remember, people do behaviors because they work for something, and um, uh, and and so so we have to think about what is keeping this behavior going. You know, one thing that um, is sometimes parents have very, very big displays of their own emotions. Like, what the heck do you think you're doing? Don't you re realize how terrible this is? Uh, you know, they the parents themselves freak out. They show tremendous fear. Um, remember that many of the young people who self-injure are highly, highly sensitive. They're almost like emotional sponges. Um, and so, um, you know, having these big displays of emotionality isn't actually that helpful uh, for these kids. Um, and so uh, remember, uh, children who are very sensitive will, uh, when you show big displays of emotionality, will have will have their own big displays of emotionality. So you can co-dysregulate, but you can also co-regulate. So be, you know, finding a way to be calm, not, you know, uh, uh, waiting for a time to have a discussion about this is going to be really, really important. I also think that parents need to know a lot more um, psychoeducation on self-injury, um, you know, to sort of understand it a little bit more. You can 
uh, read about it, you know, understand that it's often helpful in regulating emotions and regulating relationships, uh, and um, and that it's not about uh, suicide. And of course, of course, you have to always take it seriously. Uh, but but it's um, you know the, it's getting away from some of the myths of uh, of self injury. Let, let me let me just ask one final question. Mm-hmm. We've seen uh, psychiatric disorders in teens: anxiety, depression, loneliness, stress, which isn't a disorder, but they're stressed out, um, and suicidal behavior increase over the last at least ten to fifteen years. Um, have you seen cutting increase? I mean, you've been doing this a long time. Have you seen cutting increase over the last, say, 10 to 15 years? And if so, do you think that there's some societal issues or increased pressures on kids that we need to deal with, not just in DBT, but in kind of looking at our social environment and what stresses and pressures society is placing on the kids to foster maladaptive behavior mm-hmm. yeah i think this is a, such a such a such a important question because i think it it's it's it speaks to the the heart of the problem you know um when kids go to school uh schools insist and parents insist on 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 academic excellence and academic performance and one of the things that we do is we also, many schools have uh, physical education and physical wellness. But one of the things that we don't do as schools is we don't have mental wellness and mental education. And um, the the push for excellence, the pressure on these kids to do so well, uh, is actually taking a toll. There was a, a very interesting paper called the Silicon Valley Suicides, where kids in Silicon Valley who were off the charts in terms of standardized tests, we're, we're, we're making suicide attempts and completing suicide at twice the rate of, of kids in other schools. I also think about, uh, you know, kind of experiences of despair, whether it's substance use, et cetera, um, that we're waiting until kids are really struggling before teaching the skill sets that they need to be able to function. And I honestly would give up some of the things that we teach in schools. And maybe I would say, okay, math teachers, history teachers, English teachers, everybody has to give up a couple of lessons a year, Uh, not worry so much on uh, that final, uh, uh, you know, result and and, and what they've learned because, and and really focus on uh, from very, very early on uh, teaching the skills to these kids. Um, Because the other thing is this, the less stressed a child is, the more they're going to be able to learn. The more stressed they are, the less they can retain memory, the less uh, information they keep, the less they can learn. So uh, so it's in the short term, you know, we, we, we insist on academic excellence, but it's at a tremendous cost uh, to the kids that we see. And then the other thing is, um, is uh, you know, the bullying that happens in things like social media uh, is so much more powerful than, than, than what used to be face-to-face bullying in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, 
bullying can spread very, very quickly and people can be very ostracized very quickly on social media and they've got no way of of sort of defending themselves or, or making their case. So so kids today are, are facing um, unimaginable um, uh, uh, stressors global warming kids talk to me about that uh, politics racism the war uh ukraine russia you know they talk about these things a lot uh, they have access to the information but they don't know you know how how to contextualize it and to manage it and that's why i really think that we have to start at very young in the same way that we teach kids uh, academics and and physical education is teaching them uh, uh mental wellness and mental education well, this has been great. Um, really tough topic. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate all of your information. I'm sure that parents and all caregivers are going to be very interested in in uh, in, in what you've what you've said. Um, uh, so the way we like to end is, is there something you're looking forward to um, over the next week or so, please? Um, you know, it, it, over the last couple of weeks, I've um, done more teaching. I, and I love teaching. Um, I love thinking about difficult puzzles in um, in uh, mental health. But uh, uh, one of the uh, really sort of exciting things for me is I've uh, co-written a new book um, with uh, with a colleague um, uh, for people who've got both uh, borderline personality disorder or emotional dysregulation and obsessive compulsive disorder um, and using a combination of dialectical behavior therapy and exposure and response prevention, a uh, colleague of mine, John uh, Hirschfield. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's being submitted now for, uh, you know, final putting together at our publisher. So it's just very exciting because it's been a particularly complicated group of young people to, to treat. So uh, I think we're down to the last week waiting for our foreword. So, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Khadija, how about you? Yeah, that's super exciting because I think to your point in the very end, like it's really all about education, education for the parents and teachers, education for, for us as providers. So um, for me, what am I looking forward to? I'm just looking forward to relaxing. The fall has been so busy and, and, I'm, and not in a bad way, in a good way. And I'm also tired. So I'm looking forward to just relaxing a little bit um, and thinking about my family, hopefully being able to come together in a couple of weeks um, and what big fun we'll do um, with all of the, the ne nieces and nephews. So that, that's really what I'm looking forward to. So what about you, Eugene? Well, let's see. Um, you know, now that gardening season is over, which is taking up a lot of my... Uh, time. I'm looking forward to having more time to kind of to play the piano and guitar, <laughs> uh, because I've often gone into my lessons unprepared, and I always feel terrible if I'm unprepared. So uh, I'm I'm looking to play more. So uh, don't forget, everybody, that episodes will be uh, airing every third Thursday of the month. Please subscribe if you're uh, and if you're feeling generous, write us a review. We hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Khadija Bush-Watkins. Thank you.
So I I I I, uh, I went um, to uh, my ATM the other day, and um, I decided to uh, stand in tree pose, like on one leg, in front of the ATM machine. And uh, this person behind me got really really annoyed, and they eventually they tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, what you doing?" And I said, "Hey, why are you bothering me? I'm checking my balance." Okay, Khadija, you, you know what? I'll tell you why you can't work on our unit. Because you just did the eye roll that everybody like does on my unit, you know. Oh, so I'm wait, perfect wait. for your unit. Uh, well, wait, I, know, I would fit right I had, in. It's, wait, it's, wait, it's, wait. It's I, thought, I, I, I keep going. I thought this was a dad joke. Uh-huh. Well, I have so many. I mean, we could, you know, be laughing all day.